whoever the president is in January, we're, ha- we're going to have to take a good, hard look at Obamacare. It can't continue the way it is. This is Dan Diamond, and you're listening to Pulse Check. Lamar Alexander is one of the most consequential legislators in Washington. The Tennessee senator leads the Senate Health Committee, arguably the most important congressional committee for health care right now, and the perch that his predecessor Ted Kennedy used to help shape health reforms for years. Now chairman, Senator Alexander is balancing a number of major bills, a biomedical innovation package called 21st Century Cures, opioid legislation called CARA, and, and a major mental health reform too, Lawmakers are rushing to finish all of them this year. I sat down with Senator Alexander to discuss that legislation, his remarkable career as a lawmaker and presidential candidate, and how Hillary Clinton, and as he conspicuously put it, the Republican nominee, could change health care next year. But first, thank you for listening to Pulse Check and for sharing it too. Remember to find us and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, all the podcast apps. We should be there. We'd love to keep doing this show. And the more support we get from you, the easier it is to keep building on what we've done. And with that, let's hear from Senator Lamar Alexander. Pat Summit passed away today, the legendary basketball coach at University of Tennessee. Relatively young, you were governor of Tennessee when she was first breaking through. You were president of the school when she won a national championship. What's your favorite Pat Summit story? My favorite Pat Summit story is that um, she had a great player named Candace Parker. Sure. She had a lot of great players, but Candace might have been her best. And there was one time that Candace, three-time All-American national champion, was going to get to play in Candace's hometown. I think it was in Ohio. And she missed curfew the night before by 10 minutes. And Pat set her on the bench for the first half of the game, despite the fact that she had hundreds of her family and friends there. I mean, Pat was a played no favorites. She brought the best out of every single person she touched. And um, she was an absolutely remarkable person. I just alluded to the fact that you were head of the university for mm-hmm. several years. You were cabinet secretary for education. You're now chairman of the HELP Committee, Health, Education, Labor, Pensions. You've clearly got the E covered in the HELP title. I'm curious how that informs your perspective on health care. Well, that's uh, it, in, in a way you might not suspect because when I was governor of Tennessee, which was in the 80s, I was working hard to improve schools and our colleges, and so we became the first state to pay teachers more for teaching well. We created $100 million chairs of excellence. We did a whole lot of things in education. I kept trying to fund education properly. My biggest nemesis was health care. I mean, at that time, Medicaid, the Medicaid program, was about 8% of the state budget, and I was trying to keep it under control. Only 8%. Today, it's 30. Today, it's more like 30 And what a lot of people around the country don't understand, a lot of college students, when they see their tuition go up, it's because state funding is down for the University of Tennessee, for example. And state funding's down because, not because the governor doesn't like the University of Tennessee. 
it's because the pot of money he has is a lot smaller and the money he would otherwise be spending for the universities he's having to spend for Medicaid. So part of the way I approach health care is to try to keep um, costs under control so we can afford to do the things we need to do as a country. And so health care isn't crowding out education and yeah. other public well, priorities. Well, it crowds out education. It crowds out research for energy. You know, it crowds out um, our, our national defense. It adds to the debt. Uh, so, uh, and, and when you get into the private sector, I've spent about half my life before I became a United States Senator in the private sector as a business person or as a lawyer and the companies in which I was involved in today, um, I can't be active in a company today. The ones I know about, uh, find their biggest obstacle to creating new jobs is the cost of Obamacare, healthcare. I, I want to put that on a spinning plate and come back to it, though you, you just hit on a point that has been interesting to me, a story I'm working on for Politico, about jobs and Obamacare's impact, not impact. Tennessee, some of our listeners will know this, is like what Silicon Valley is to tech, Tennessee is to healthcare. Huge healthcare yep. businesses come out of, mm -hmm. of Nashville. I think there's $39 billion of economic impact from healthcare in Nashville alone. How does that make it harder when you're legislating and trying to reduce the cost of health care? Because every dollar spent in health care is presumably dollars that are going to folks' jobs in health care. Well, one would hope that the competition that the private sector brings to health care would reduce costs. Doesn't always do that, but that's, that's the idea. And I can give you an example, the big hospitals that are around Nashville, I think about half of the investor-owned hospital headquarters are in Nashville. Right. They're in an alliance right now with some of the big university hospitals like Vanderbilt and Emory to try to bring electronic healthcare record costs under control and to increase interoperability, the idea that the all those devices in your hospital room and all the data in your medical records over the years could somehow be put into a system where you could actually get a hold of it and the doctor that you go to see could just bring it up to his fingertips or her fingertips and prescribe a medicine for you that fits just you and this is something you've looked at interoperability a, yeah. a word that i, I but wish. the hospitals these private hospitals have said well we're we're buying a hundred billion dollars worth of stuff a year they're not all private but most of them are so we think we'll tell the vendors what we want to buy instead of letting them tell us what we have to buy. And we'll think that we'll insist that they sell it to us in a way that we can make it interoperable, that we can, that we can make it fit into a platform, plug in, just like your cable TV does in a way, so that any, any device that's invented, any new drug, any piece of data can all fit into this one system and everybody can then use it. So if, if I'm paraphrasing what you just said, Senator, you think that private sector initiatives and the focus on making things operate more smoothly electronically are ways to make healthcare more efficient without harming the economy, without harming jobs well, in a bad way? I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, just look at the airlines. I mean, if the government were running the airlines, we wouldn't have, we take airlines for granted. Here, here what, two million of us fly every day. We can go into our device and find out exactly where the airplane is that we're about to get on or where it is not. We can buy a ticket. We can make a reservation. We can show up. All this stuff is effortlessly. That happened because 
I think it was American Airlines, invented a reservation system that all the airlines now use, and, and it was then a disruptive technology. They, they found a way to do it. The government could never do that. So what I'm hoping is that in the electronic health care records, either Apple or Google or someone will come along and see this big market and say, we can simplify that. We can make it easy for doctors to take advantage of the precision medicine initiative that President Obama talks about, which would permit your doctor to prescribe a different medicine for your disease than he does for me, even though we might have the same disease. We are recording this on Tuesday afternoon going into evening. Tomorrow, the White House is holding its Cancer Moonshot Summit. I know this has been something that you've tracked closely. You've actually talked about how it might help with other legislation moving forward. 21st century cures, potentially. Mm -hmm. What is the best possible outcome and the most realistic outcome from the White House cancer moonshot? Well, the most realistic outcome for the cancer moonshot is to provide some coordination. Now, not government management, but a little more coordination of all the various efforts going on. Do you think it's doing that? Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Vice President Biden's really got his heart and soul in this. And and he's uncovering and putting his his spotlight on some things that need to be spotlighted. For example, uh, I believe, as he does, that people who have research grants from the National Institutes of Health ought to be required to share their data. That would advance cancer treatments if more people knew about the data. That will be a part of our 21st Century Cures legislation, which is trying to support the vice president's cancer moonshot in a variety of ways. So just just so I'm understanding, and some of our listeners know this legislation very well, they're avid Politico readers mm -hmm. who've tracked the process, others might be a little newer. Where does that legislation stand? I've heard that it's close, but it's almost July and it's still not moved to the floor. It, well, the House has passed it three, with 344 votes last year. The Senate has completed work on 19 different bipartisan bills that would reform the FDA, moving treatments and devices and medicines through more rapidly and, and into the medicine cabinet. And, and, and the president wants to sign it because it has as a priority more funding for precision medicine, cancer moonshot, and the brain initiative, all of which are priorities of his. Uh, we have yet to resolve some questions about a surge of funding for the National Institutes of Health. When we get that done, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he'll put it on the floor. He's also a very strong supporter. So, you know, if the House has passed it, Mitch McConnell wants to do it, and the president wants to sign it, you'd think we could get it done. Though, though that surge of funding for the NIH is not insignificant. My memory says it's multiple billions of dollars, not $9 billion. The House passed $8.8 billion mm -hmm. uh, last year, and we'll see what we can do this year. The good news is that the regular appropriations process last year added $2 billion a year to, to the National Institutes of Health sure. research funding. So the way we count things in Washington, that's you know, $2 billion over 10 years, that's 20. And then this year, the Senate Appropriations Committee added another $2 billion. So stepping up in the regular appropriations process permits us to, to take uh, some one-time objectives, and we've picked precision medicine, cancer moonshot, and the brain initiative, and say, we'll take six or eight billion more dollars and devote it one time to each of these 
uh, objectives. That's what we're working on right now. Got it. So from my perch, funding in Washington, especially for healthcare initiatives, has been a little tricky to come by this year. There was a vote this morning on Zika funding. The House had passed a package that Senate Democrats and the White House are opposed to. There's the opioid legislation, and funding for that has been somewhat in flux. At the same time, the White House has put aside a billion dollars for its cancer moonshot. What if, if, if you were controlling all of the purse strings, what would you put those dollars, as many dollars as possible, toward in a world where we can't put dollars to every initiative that folks want? Well, I support the $2 billion increase last year and this year for the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Collins, Francis Collins, who's a really a genius, we're so fortunate to have him heading what he calls the National Institutes of Hope. He's amazing. T- t- testified before our committee about what he thinks could happen in the next 10 years, and it's vaccine for Zika, maybe by 2018, vaccine for universal flu that killed 30,000 people last year, vaccine for HIV AIDS, a non-addictive pain management, which would help get rid of the opioid epidemic. He thinks we'll be using stem cells, our own cells, to rebuild and restore our own hearts, putting heart transplant surgeons like Dr. Bill Frist out of business, you know, know some, someday. He, he says there will be an artificial pancreas. It's almost here. And, and, and the help that would be to diabetes uh, patients is incalculable. So I'd start with putting this increased funding for the National Institutes of Health. I liked Senator Ayotte's idea of state grants for opioids. Mm. Uh, that's a real healthcare crisis right now. In 2014, more people died of opioid overdoses than gunshots or auto wrecks. Uh, so that would be another place for for funding. And I think we should move ahead with, with uh, the Zika funding. I mean, I can't believe that the Democrats are holding up $1.1 billion of funding for Zika when, when, the, when we have a, za- a vaccine within our grasp by 2018. I mean, this is terrifying uh, pregnant women or young women who want to be pregnant with the possibility that their child might might be born with with serious with brain ser- defects, serious yeah. serious defect. So, so we need to get that one billion one uh, through the process. So those are three areas of funding that I think we we should do. I I always find it interesting to talk to folks on different sides of the aisle because I've heard from Democratic members just taking Zika as as an example that the package isn't palatable. It's taking money from other initiatives that the White House has said are important and then includes some provisions on restrictions on abortion, funding for abortion, and Democrats say that's just a non-starter. Well, we, we don't believe that's true. And, and, and we think they've made that up just because of a fiscal argument over funding, uh, over how it's funded. But they ought to put that aside and look at the bigger picture. None of these pieces of legislation that we work on are ever exactly like any of us wants it. But one reason I've enjoyed working with Patty Murray, the senior Democrat on our health, education, labor, and pensions committee, Very is impressive, that, yeah. that she's result-oriented. And she usually we can focus on the 80% we agree with and then you know, uh, fight about the 20% another day. You, you and Senator Murray have done quite a bit of bipartisan legislation. 
these past number of years, not just in healthcare, but in education and well, we last year we 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 fixed No Child Left Behind, which people hadn't been able to do before. The president called it a Christmas miracle, and it hopefully will settle elementary and secondary education policy for the next dozen years. We've worked out a mental health bill both last year and this year, which as soon as we get through arguing about gun control, we can probably get to to mental health, which would be an important contribution to some of the causes of the violence that we've that we've seen. So we're working pretty well together. If you had to put a date on when the mental health bill, another one of your key priorities, when that is going to make it to the floor, any sense on that? My guess is September. You know, I'd like for it to be done today. Senator Murphy, a Democrat, uh, and Senator Cassidy, a Republican, have done really good work here in the in the Senate. The House mental health bill and the Senate mental health bill are now a lot alike. So there shouldn't be a problem um, putting them together. But the only way we can get it through the Senate is if we have enough consensus about it that we can do it with three or four amendments and then go to Senator McConnell and say, please put it on the floor. We can finish it in a day. I, I want to also go back to the opioid legislation because to your point, this has become more of a public health crisis. And mm-hmm. the the legislation has been stalled for some time. There are reports that the White House is even encouraging Democrats to stall in order to turn up the heat on Republicans to fund more toward toward CARA. What do you make of those reports? Well, it is true that the president and Senate Democrats want us to add money to what is an authorization bill. I mean, this this is not an appropriations bill. We do the appropriations on another track. Um, I'm willing to do that if we can make sure it's paid for and if we can do it appropriately. I think a good use of the money would be grants to states. Most of the action on opioid abuse is in is in the states. Most of the solution to the problem is in the states. And Senator Ayotte has recommended that before. The, and, the, and the Republicans actually voted for it in the reconciliation bill we passed last year that, that uh, uh, repealed Obamacare, except the president vetoed it. So that ought to be an area that we could agree on if we could find a way to pay for it. Do you think we waited too long to confront the opioid epidemic? It would have been better to do it earlier, but now certainly not too late. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, epidemics are, by definition, things that spring us on us suddenly. And I can, you know, Ebola is one year, and the next thing we know, we, we, we hear more about, about opioids. Of course, we've, we should have started earlier, but, but, but now's the time to do all that we can. And this bill, passed by the Senate and by the House, with some additional funding for state grants, I think, would be a, an important step toward solving the problem. What would you want to get ahead of next that we're not tackling right now? Well, um, electronic health care records, I mentioned that. That mm-hmm. may seem, you know, we started out this year on working on our 21st century cures legislation that the House passed last year, which is basically FDA reform and, and National Institutes of Health reform. And, and we saw that we'd spent $30 billion on electronic health care records, and the program was in a ditch. And I've worked with Secretary Burwell and Andy Slavitt at CMS, and really working together, plus the legislation we've got in, in our Cures Bill, we think we can reduce physician documentation. We think we can deal with some of the privacy issues. We think we can encourage interoperability 
Uh, can, can you legislate a different word other than interoperability? It would be nice if we could. Uh, it would be nice if we could. What that really means is taking all your health care records on the one hand and the devices that make your, hotel, your, 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 your hospital room seem like a war zone and making them all talk to each other or work together so that when you go see your doctor, it's as simple as you know, getting your information is as simple as making an airline reservation. Now, it may never be quite that simple, but that's the idea. Otherwise, we'll all be just toting our healthcare records from one hospital to the next. And if I can editorialize for the listeners for a second, when you said that the program was a bit in the ditch, it's because there's been very little evidence that it's improved productivity. Physicians have complained that the digitization effort has led to increased documentation. There's no real quality evidence. But but to move on yeah, to— Yeah, and, and at one major hospital, well, Vanderbilt said stage one of it was very helpful to get doctors using these devices. Stage two, well, they could hop, tolerate. Stage three, they said, is terrifying. So we're trying to make it less terrifying and something doctors and patients and hospitals actually look forward to. Hey, this is Dan Diamond, and this is our 10th episode of Pulse Check, which is great, really exciting. I wanted to spend a minute to just take you behind the curtain. On our most popular episode so far, it's still our first one with Andy Slavitt, the head of CMS. Folks are still discovering it and downloading it every week. Our most shared episode on social media, the one with Karen DeSalvo, the National Coordinator for Health IT and Assistant Secretary for Health. And our most controversial episode, would have to be about two weeks ago. Peter Bach and Ted Oaken squaring off on Medicare's Part B pilot. I'm still getting emails about that. You can find all of those episodes and more on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. Just search for Pulse Check. You'll see us there. And you've given us great suggestions about potential guests, but we want to know not just who you want to hear from, but what questions we should answer to. You can email me at ddiamond@politico.com. And one last note, it's important to us that we feature voices from across the spectrum, whether that means different political corners or making sure we have female guests too. Some of that is dependent on the news cycle, but rest assured, we know it matters and we're working on it. And with that, let's get back to Senator Alexander. A a topic that I feel like you might have a few things to say, your, your piece on is Obamacare. And you mentioned earlier the impact on the economy from Obamacare. But I, I want to go back all the way to when the legislation was being hammered out. And I remember you speaking at Blair House in February 2010. Mm-hmm. The White House is trying to get through what looked like at the time this doomed package. And, and you said something pretty remarkable, uh, something that you'd heard from Democrats when you were a young governor. And that's, quote, we, we want you to succeed because if you succeed, our country succeeds. Yeah. Do you think Republicans have helped Obama succeed? Well, on that, he didn't give us a chance. I mean, I said that that day because I want him to listen to what we were saying and take it into a chance and, 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 and pass the health care bill in a way that developed a consensus so that the country would support it. He was tempted by the fact that he had the presidency and they had 60 votes and they could just ram it through, and so they did. And instead of being like the civil rights bill or—, or, or or, um, for example, where people with very different degrees came together, got a consensus, and everybody supported it after it was passed, we immediately began trying to repeal it after it was passed. And, and pointing out, like at the White House summit, 
I said, Mr. President, the individual rates are going to go up under this. He said, I was wrong. Well, last year, 14% in Tennessee. This year, 29%. Next year, they've asked for 62%. That's doubling in in two years. You're talking about the premiums. Or the Premiums on premium individual rates, rates. Yes. yeah, yes. In, in Tennessee. So compare that to what we did last year, and let's give the president some credit for this, with fixing No Child Left Behind. That was difficult to do as well. Three Congresses had failed, and Senator Murray and I and our committee members, who ranged from Elizabeth Warren to Rand Paul, you know, on the same committee. Pretty broad range pretty of folks. Broad, about, as, about as broad as you can get. Um, we, we got a consensus, and, and what happened was when it was over, the teachers' unions as well as the governors said, okay, let's go do it. Let's get this done. And, that's, and they're still together trying to make sure the Department of Education implements the way we, we wrote it. So I was very disappointed. I was trying to say to the president, Mr. President, if you'll work with us, we want you to succeed in this because if you do, the country succeeds. He hadn't succeeded in this. I hope he does in the education bill. Speaker Ryan has introduced a framework for potentially repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. What do you make of that? Well, I haven't read it and studied it enough to, 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 to give a judgment. Here's what I make of it. He also, in that same document, uh, supported the 21st Century Cures legislation, which is another health care track. But what I make of it is that whoever the president is in January, we're, ha- we're going to have to take a good hard look at Obamacare. It can't continue the way it is. And so having Speaker Ryan's suggestions are are helpful. We'll have some in the Senate. Um, I don't think Republicans can go another four years, whether we have a Republican president or not, saying just give us a couple more Republicans and we'll repeal Obamacare. Um, that's certainly not going to happen if Hillary Clinton is there. And it may not even happen if a Republican president is there. So whatever happens, even if Hillary's there, I think she's going to look at it and see what it's doing to small business, see what it's doing to states, seeing the number of people who are left out of Medicaid across the country because the governors disagree with Obamacare and say, we can't let this continue. We're going to have to make some changes. Let's say that the Affordable Care Act does stand, but one piece of it gets knocked down. What piece of that would you want to change? Medicaid. The Medicaid expansion? Well, yes. Make the Medicaid expansion something that's all the states are willing to to participate in. Um, What states are afraid of is, and I understand this, is that if they buy into this, even though it doesn't sound like much money, they watched it go in Tennessee from 8% of the state budget to 30%, even higher, and they're afraid if they buy into another federal version of it that it'll go up to 35 or 40%, and that will reduce funding for every other aspect of state government. So... In Indiana, in Tennessee, in various places, governors have tried to come up with these compromise. compromises that would say, we'll buy into the federal Medicaid program if you'll give us more flexibility to control costs. And that's the most important thing we could do. That would help the most people have health care costs, including those who need it the most. And it would help states be fiscally responsible and help us be fiscally responsible in, in Washington. You, you just mentioned Hillary Clinton and, and a, the Republican nominee name conspicuously not mentioned. What do you think would be the biggest challenge in working with either Hillary Clinton or the Republican nominee, which at this point presumably will be Donald Trump, barring a magical candidate falling from the sky? 
what do you think would be the hardest challenge for you as HELP committee chair and making healthcare legislation happen with either one of them? Well, the most helpful thing would be if either one of them who's who becomes president actually is a deal maker and recognizes that in order to get a consensus, they're going to have to take ideas that they don't agree with, or at least not their first choice. And that in order to get support out in the country for changes in health care, they're going to first have to have a consensus. I mean, the founders were pretty smart when they set up the House and the Senate and the President, and they expected us to try to work together. And if we got a consensus on big issues, then we could do it. And if we didn't, we couldn't. And we need a president who understands that. President Obama hasn't been very good at that. He was good on the education bill. I give him credit for that. So but the potential was there. Potential was there, but but uh, he, either by aptitude or instinct or by philosophy, I don't know what the problem has been, that it's been hard for many members of Congress to work with him in that way. Well, you said we, we need someone who can make deals. There is a candidate who has bragged about his ability to make deals with other businesses. And, and Well, and Hillary Clinton was is married to a fellow who made a lot of deals when he was president. I mean, I, I, Bill Clinton was elected governor in Arkansas the same day I was in Tennessee. And so I've worked with uh, Hillary before, both there and in the Senate. And if she shows an aptitude for you know, taking a position, listening to other people, and, and looking for the 80% instead of the 20, or Mr. Trump does if he's the president, well, then we can, we can improve the health care system. I, I want to spend just a few more minutes, Senator, on the idea of presidential run. I mean, you were someone that I've been dying to talk to, not just for this podcast, but because you have insight that very few Americans have. You've mm. run for president. You did it twice. Well, once and a half. <laughs> Well, in 1996, I'm assuming that was the once, and 2000 yeah. was a little bit more of the, yeah, I the half I, measure. I, I, I was kind of like the Wright Brothers airplane. I didn't quite get off the ground. And, and, well, you were and, driving a van, right? So yeah, made, right. it's hard to, hard to launch the van. Right, but in 96, I did pretty well. You, you did, and a few thoughts on that. First, when, when Jeb Bush ran, he, like you, had the exclamation point. I know that's because you shared Mike Murphy as an advisor, and when Jeb ran, and I shouldn't say Jeb, I don't know him personally, Governor Bush, when he ran in Florida, he also used the, the same exclamation point iconography. Why do you think it it didn't work out for Governor Bush this time? He's a good governor, he's an honorable guy. You know, I, I am mystified by that. I mean, if I had to, you know, I, I'm a, I, I have great respect for Governor Huckabee, too. I served with him. But if you had to pick a Republican governor who was a bona fide conservative and who got results and who worked with other people and who had all the temperament and skills uh, to be president, you'd have to pick Jeb Bush. But he didn't fit the times. He didn't fit the times, and the times seem to be a populist time. And I, I think the reason is the difficulty people have had with all the change. You know, I ran 20 years ago, which to many people seems like a long time, not that long a time. Amazon was one year old 20 years ago. So people were buying their things at the local store. 
Uh, I was the first presidential candidate ever to announce on the internet. People didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't know that. Wow. Well, but people, I mean, no one was using the internet in 1996. There were three major television stations, CNN a little bit, and I used to think if I got on road to the White House on C-SPAN that I was on national television. Um, we hadn't, the only person talking about terrorism was Senator Lugar, who was running, and everybody was bored by it. Not by his running, but by his talk on terrorism. Nobody was interested. It was before 9-11. NAFTA hadn't had any influence. Immigration wasn't It was a issue. different time. So everybody now has had to absorb these changes, and it's been hard to do for many families. And they're looking for somebody, in many cases, to blame for the condition in which they find themselves. And I think we populist is probably not a bad word for the time. And we see it here, and we see it in Europe and other places. So Governor Bush, this wasn't the year for him. I have to imagine you've thought about what the best year would have been for you. If you could have picked a year to run for president, what year would it have been? I think 96 was the year. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, It's uh, harder than it looks. And um, I got through a pretty good set of competitors and came close in New Hampshire and very nearly got into the, basically the finals at the time. And... And uh, I would have been running against Bill Clinton. That would have been a hard, hard race. But we were contemporaries. And so I think that was the right time for me to run. Well, if, if you run again, I, I want to make sure you're back on this podcast and we can get the exclusive on that. So thank you for the time today, Senator. <laughs> thank you for your time. That's it for Pulse Check today. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our editorial assistant, Mary Lee. You can find Pulse Check on Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, all the podcast apps, we should be there. And again, every time we get a new rating or review, you help us move up the charts. That lets new people find the show, and it also helps us compete in the informal Politico horse race around podcast popularity. We'll be back again with a new episode of Pulse Check next week. Pulse Check.